once again be delving into the dark world of sexual blackmail cover-ups and state-sanctioned child abuse. The most recent episode where we covered such topics was on episode 18, when we had Elizabeth Voss on the program to discuss the Finders cult, and this episode will cover similar themes and topics, so consider yourself warned. Today, we will be covering a scandal that, like the Finders, was also the subject of a massive government cover-up. This dark episode in American history, which I briefly covered in part two of my series on the Jeffrey Epstein case for Mint Press News in 2019, is best known as the Franklin Scandal. This scandal revolved around a child abuse network that spanned the nation and appeared to service depraved individuals within the American political and power elite. For those unfamiliar with the Franklin Scandal, it has that name for the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union, which essentially served as the front for something much, much darker. The credit union was led by a man named Larry King, of no relation whatsoever to the famous late broadcaster. King was accused not only of massively defrauding the financial institution he ran, but also of being one of the main pimps for a nationwide masochistic pedophile ring and apparently much more. Joining me to discuss the Franklin Scandal is the man who wrote the authoritative book on the matter, and investigative journalist and author Nick Bryant. In addition to writing The Franklin Scandal, Nick has co-written The Confessions of a DC Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. He was also the person to first publish Jeffrey Epstein's now infamous black book on Gawker several years ago, and continues to write on that case as well. So thanks, Nick, for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. I'm glad to be here, Whitney. Wonderful. Well, I think some listeners uh, might be curious about how you first got involved in this story and covering these topics. I know that you explain it in your book on the Franklin scandal, but for those that haven't had a chance to read it, uh, how did you first get involved in investigating sexual blackmail and child abuse and what led you to investigate the Franklin scandal specifically? Well, I've always been sensitive to children's issues. And prior to getting into child trafficking, I'd written a number of things about lower socioeconomic children in the United States of America. And actually, I wrote a book about that, too. So I've always been sensitive to children's issues. And in 2002, I was talking to the editor of a major magazine, and he said he was looking for very dark stories. And, you know, I threw a bunch of Dark story. I said, well, I mean, I kind of put my arms up in there. I said, well, I mean, what do you want? Nazis, Satanists? I mean, how dark do you want to go? And uh, and then a light bulb went off in his head and he, go, and he pointed and said, yes, Satanists. So um, that led me to what well, I, I hung out with some Satanists here and there. And um, and actually, I did kind of find them unsavory. Um but that ultimately led to me when, and, and you know this, when you're investigating something, other things will just kind of come into play. And, mm-hmm. and the thing that came into play as I investigated the occult was the U.S. Finders Report. And you had summed it up uh, earlier. It, it's about a, a, a cult that was seemingly trafficking children and Two of the members were busted in Tallahassee, Florida, with two children. And I was able to get the Tallahassee police report that said that uh, at least one of those six children had been sexually abused. But what happened was the CI intervened in that case, and the two finders who were indicted on multiple counts of child trafficking were let out of prison, and, they, and the children were repatriated with the cult. 
And that stunned me. I didn't, I mean, I knew that the CIA fomented coups to protect uh, uh, large corporations. Um, and I knew that the CIA had, had done some unsavory stuff, but why would the CIA be in bed with a very, very strange cult that, um, according to the Tallahassee Police Report, was was it was abusing children? I it I could not explain it with my personal experience. I couldn't explain something like that, and that's what started my quest, looking for other scenarios where children have been trafficked and there is a seeming connection to the CIA or intelligence and also uh, blackmail. And ultimately, that led me to Omaha, Nebraska, where there had been a scandal uh, about 10 years earlier where a student loan or a student, uh, not a student, <laughs> a um, credit union named the Franklin Credit Union was served as a front for a nationwide pedophile network. So I started digging into that. And actually, there had been a legislative committee in Nebraska that had investigated that. And there was a, a, a number of mysterious deaths. And ultimately, that Senate subcommittee was rolled over by a juggernaut of federal power. There were there were two grand juries that said that there was absolutely no abuse uh, with the Franklin scandal. But I was able to uh, score the entire exhibits and testimony of one of the grand juries, and uh, and with that there were a list of sixty victims, and I just went around finding victims for a while. And then once I reached a critical mass with the victims, or I felt that I had a critical mass with the victims, as I was, I was, as I was looking for the victims, I was uh, researching and investigating other things. And I found out that that particular network did fly many children to Washington, D.C., and there was a power broker named Craig Spence who would have pedophilic parties in his house. And his house was wired for audiovisual blackmail. So, and, and everybody who was anybody went to Craig Spence's uh, uh, parties. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing about it is, I'm sure that there were a number of people compromised. And, the Washington Times reported a number or, or had a number of articles on Craig Spence's uh, blackmail paraphernalia and accoutrement, but the Washington Post and the New York Times just came down really hard on the Washington Times, which isn't difficult given that the owners of the Washington Times are <laughs> the, the Moonies. So, uh, but they, there was some amazing reporting done by those Washington Times journalists, and they were actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, um, even though they had the albatross of the Moonies around their neck. So at that point, I, I was digging around in Washington, D.C., and I found a, a critical mass of corroboration that's in the book. And 
basically the Franklin scandal demonstrates that there was a child trafficking network that was coast to coast. Um, a lot of the kids were plundered from Boys Town, the, the famous orphanage um, on the outskirts of Omaha, um, and that there was uh, blackmail involved of power brokers, and that network also produced child pornography. Um, and then there was unbelievable local, state, and federal malfeasance to cover it up. It's very much like the Epstein case. Um, the Epstein case. I should say the Epstein network, I believe, was in business for 25 years. And the Franklin network was in business for about um, 12 years. But the Franklin network was much bigger than the Epstein network. And um, but but there are many similarities. So um, what about the Franklin scandal has led you to believe that the pedophile network there was so was so enormous and, and larger than that was than, than that run by Epstein and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell? Because I've uh, I've investigated both networks. And. I've got a list of the victims and also um, one of the blackmail photographers, uh, I interviewed him, too. And whereas Epstein. I mean, and I have the flight receipts for Epstein, too, um, or passenger manifests. And whereas Epstein seemed to traffic three or four um, girls in his plane, um, the Franklin Network trafficked like 10 or 15 kids at a time. And the Franklin Network also produced according to my sources, a large amount of child pornography. I believe that Epstein also produced child pornography, but nothing like what uh, the Franklin scandal. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it was Epstein's focus as much, the pornography angle. And from what you describe in, in the book, the Franklin scandal um, definitely was a lot more focused on on that, on producing uh, pornographic images, also uh, films, and also the apparent... Uh, uh, sale of children, which I found really um, unsettling. Well, with the Epstein case, there has been the sale of children um, in Eastern Europe. Yeah, Epstein, mm -hmm. Epstein, I, I meant within the U.S., I guess. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, um, and what people miss about child trafficking is they think that child trafficking doesn't really happen in the United States of America, um, and they think that it's maybe... Mexican children, but actually the vast majority of kids that are trafficked in the United States of America are American kids. So the Franklin scandal centers around one man, Larry King. So who was Larry King and exactly how powerful was he before the credit unions collapse? Actually, the Franklin scandal centers around two men, Larry King and Craig Spence. Larry King was a, uh, he was an African American. He grew up in a blue collar family. And he went to, uh, he was in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, and he was given a top security clearance. And he came back to Omaha, Nebraska, and he was able to get, garner a lot of money to start to get this credit union rolling. And he would have been considered an 
an insider in by a lot of Republican circles. Uh, he sang the national anthem at the 1984 Republican convention, and he rubbed elbows with the uh, the elite of the Republican Party. And Craig Spence, he was an ABC correspondent in Vietnam at. Uh, and, and King and Spence were in Southeast Asia at, at about the same time. And Craig Spence, in addition to being an ABC correspondent, um, he seemingly would do things that were uh, that 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 were intelligence related. So you have both King and Spence in Southeast Asia at that same time, and I can't prove this, but I think that they, given that both are just unrepentant pedophiles, um, I think that they might have been busted in Southeast Asia with little boys. This is, this is I, my theory on it anyway. And, and ultimately, they made a, a Faustian pact with intelligence. Because when both of them got back to the United States, their fortunes escalated exponentially. And both came from working class families. Um, there, there, wasn't a, there wasn't like familial money behind uh, Larry King or Craig Spence. So, and those two were the, uh, the essential figures of that pedophile network. It's Larry King flew a lot of kids from coast to coast. And that was, uh, he was a, a logistics guy. And then Craig Spence had the house in Washington DC that was wired for audiovisual blackmail. And the thing that is really amazing about this is they operated this huge pedophile network, as I said earlier, for 12 years. And there were so many opportunities for them to get busted, but they skated. There were actually three grand juries that were needed to cover up the Franklin network. Uh, there was a state grand jury in Nebraska. There was a federal grand jury in Nebraska. And then there was a federal grand jury in Washington, D.C., Whereas Epstein required one grand jury, the Franklin Network required three grand juries to cover up. Yeah, that's considerable. So I found the cover up just totally um, astounding, uh, the way you describe it in your book. Um, but before we get to that, um, I did want to uh, go over um, one thing that is uh, a lot of people note about the Franklin scandal are the suspicious deaths of both accomplices, witnesses, and uh, investigators of the case. So could you detail some of these suspicious deaths and what they say about the overall nature of the scandal? Well, with that, the Franklin scandal had to be covered up at all costs, because if dominoes started to fall in Nebraska, they would have fallen all the way to Washington, D.C. And I believe there's some dark, malignant corner of our intelligence agencies that does use children to blackmail uh, politicians. And this also had to be covered up because if Americans knew that uh, as a part of their intelligence was uh, actually pandering children to blackmail politicians, that would 
they'd hit the roof. And plus, um, that pedophile network, from uh, from what I've been told, went into the uh, the Bush one administration. So, if it had been exposed, uh, Bush one might have had very difficult time hanging out of power, and it would have ended the Bush dynasty. We wouldn't have had Bush two. So, there was a, the Senate subcommittee. It was called the Franklin Committee commissioned a uh, first-class private investigator. His name was Gary Caridori to in- investigate the pedophile allegations. And social services had been screaming that there was a pedophile network at work. And um, they'd gone to uh, state and federal law enforcement. And they were just simply ignored by state and federal law enforcement. So when these senators started to look into the the financial crimes of Larry King, these people in the social services went to the senators and they said, um, embezzlement is only part of the problem here. Uh, King was operating a nationwide pedophile network. So the subcommittee started to focus on uh, King's child trafficking as as well as his uh, financial crimes. And they commissioned an amazing private investigator. His name is Gary Caridori. And Gary Caridori was finding kids. Um, He was videotaping them. He was was finding passenger manifests. I ultimately was able to glean the vast majority of Gary Caridori's documentation. And he was augering into the Franklin scandal. And the velocity at which he was augering into the Franklin scandal was, was representing a problem for the FBI because they couldn't cover it up as fast as he was augering into the, uh, the network. But Caridori found the hunter became the hunted in, in the Franklin scandal. Gary Caridori found himself um, with the FBI trying to pin the child abuse allegations on him that he'd made the whole thing up, even though that, that's nonsensical because Caridori just had too much evidence. And Caridori wrote a letter to a famous defense attorney, Jerry Spence, and said and, and told him, I, I, I'm going to have to uh, hire you because the, the feds are trying to make me take the fall for perjury for saying that I concocted this pedophile network, which was which was absolute nonsense. But when you've got the power of the federal government um, saying one thing and you've got the media marching lock, stock and barrel mm-hmm. with with the government, then you can really uh, you can facts become fictions and fictions become facts. And one of the the person that ran the Omaha World Herald, which is the ma- major paper in um, Omaha and actually Nebraska, he he was part of that pedophile network. He he was a pedophile. So Gary Gary Caridori felt like he had to get irrefutable proof of of that network, and he contacted. He was able to contact Rusty Rusty Nelson, who had taken pictures of uh, various power brokers and children in compromising positions. Now, Rusty had been run out of the state by the FBI 
they uh, basically said to him, uh, make yourself scarce. Because the last thing the FBI wanted was Rusty Nelson talking. He, he, just, he knew the, the network. He was in Washington, D.C. He, he was in um, wherever, wherever King Pander children he was. And he was, Rusty isn't the paragon of veracity. And he's rather unctuous, but I have police reports and victim accounts that definitely connect him to Lawrence King. But anyway, Gary Caradori was able to get a hold of Rusty Nelson. And Rusty was in New Mexico at the time. And they met, Gary flew his plane to uh, Chicago and met Rusty Nelson. And they did so under, he took his uh, young son, AJ, who was eight years old, and they did so under the auspices of going to the All-Star game that year. But in actuality, Rusty gave Caradori irrefutable evidence in the form of pictures that that network was uh, was definitely pandering children. Um, and also there were some guys, and then there were some of the perps were pictured with the children. And Caradori was flying home and his plane essentially disintegrated over Lee County, Illinois. Um, wreckage was strewn for uh, for eighteen hundred feet, and that was the end of uh, the investigator Gary Caradori and his son. Um, his son, also the eight, eight year old AJ, died. And when authorities came to the side of the plane. Now, Gary Caradori, throughout his Franklin investigation, always had a, a leather briefcase. And that's undoubtedly where the pictures would have been. But there was no leather briefcase uh, uh, found in the plane wreckage. And, the, and, and I talk about this in the Franklin scandal. The, the investigation into Larry Caradori's death is so anomalous. Um, it's just filled with malfeasance to say, and it said that basically Gary Caradori was um, was falling asleep or had pilot air, or whatever, and then that caused the plane to disintegrate in midair. I mean, yeah, that's but, a little hard to believe, huh? So there's all kinds of other anomalies, and then Alicia Owen, who is a real hero in the Franklin scandal, she refused to recant her abuse. And she was ultimately sentenced to nine to 15 years in prison. Now, we're talking about a, a victim of sexual abuse who refused to recant, was sentenced to a nine and 15 years for perjury. And actually, she spent two years in solitary confinement. And her brother died under very mysterious circumstances in police custody. And then there was another victim, Troy Bonner, who eventually was, he was cooperating with Gary Caradori, and then the FBI got to him and scared the daylights out of him. And his brother shot himself in the head. Um, and no one in the Bonner family thought that um, his brother would have, his brother didn't like guns, and there's no way they felt that he would shoot himself in the head playing Russian roulette of all things. So, and Troy came to the conclusion that that was a warning to him to keep his mouth shut. That's, that's what he felt. 
Um, I have an affidavit by him and I have an affidavit by his mother. There was also the death of a child pornographer. He was shot in the head, back of the head execution style. And then there was another death, another suicide, where um, one of the individuals affiliated with that network supposedly put a shotgun into his mouth and, and pulled the trigger. And there are other mysterious deaths in the Franklin scandal. There's, but I had difficulties linking. I mean, I knew that there were other mysterious deaths, but I had problems finding the documentation or the corroboration linking them to the Franklin scandal. Because when I was writing the Franklin scandal, I knew that the bar had to be very, very high on corroboration. And if it was going to have any chance whatsoever of piercing the mainstream media. And generally, I had to have really rock solid corroboration on, on just about every facet of the book. And uh, so, as I said, there were some very mysterious deaths but I, that I believe were linked to the Franklin Trafficking Network, but I, I, I just couldn't prove it. So... One thing I found really crazy about the cover-up was that the FBI, uh, in, in your book, you essentially cite cases where they were giving death threats, really, to, to, to witnesses and victims to stay quiet, um, which is really astounding. So um, given the FBI's extreme role in, the, in covering up the Franklin scandal, um, what are your thoughts on the FBI's role in supposedly, quote-unquote, taking down... Uh, the Epstein network in light of their history of cover-ups? Well, the thing with the uh, the Franklin scandal is the FBI did the heavy lifting as far as intimidating witnesses, witnesses and actually dispensing death threats. And then it was ultimately the, the Department of Justice that put the finishing touches on the cover-up. So, so the FBI was able to really intimidate witnesses. So they, and, and like Rusty Nelson is a uh, case in point. I mean, he, uh, the, FBI, um, the FBI got really heavy with him. And where he was living, um, I've seen pictures of it. Actually, I've got pictures of it. Someone went in there with a, a, a gun and just a machine gun, I believe. And there's bullet holes strewn all through the house. And Rusty fled to New Mexico. and. Some of the victims that I talked to, like Alicia Owen, she was told to get out of town, too. And actually, Troy Bonner would confess that he was told to get out of town. And, and this is all uh, FBI intimidation that, um, well, not so much with Alicia, but with Troy and, and Rusty and, and a number of other people. Um, the FBI said, make yourself scarce or, or lie uh, before these grand juries. And what we see in the Epstein case is very similar in the sense that in the earlier Franklin, when in the nascent Franklin scandal, you basically had the FBI ignoring the, the child abuse. Um, and then when the senators got involved, the FBI had to engage and cover it up. With the Epstein scandal, the Farmer sisters went to the uh, went to the FBI in 1996, and they discussed uh, Jeffrey Epstein's pandering network. And the FBI, at that point, 
just ignored them, essentially ignored them. I think that there might have been one agent that wanted to do something about it, but she was crushed by the bureaucracy of, of the FBI. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, in the Franklin scandal and also with the Epstein scandal, um, the FBI played an integral role in the cover-up. But uh, what's interesting to me, I, I, I guess what I was trying to get at is that in terms of the Epstein network, the public narrative since his arrest last year, right, and also Ghislaine, uh, or sorry, in 2019, and Ghislaine um, Maxwell's arrest last year, it's been, oh, this is the department, the mainstream narrative anyway, you know, this was the Department of Justice, this is the SDNY, uh, you know, district attorneys, this is the FBI um, that are responsible for taking them down here. Um, so what do you, I guess, um, you know, given what you've discussed, um, how do you feel about that uh, narrative? I do not know why Jeffrey Epstein was taken down. I do not know that. Um, but the, the, there's some there's some parallels between the Franklin scandal and also um, the Epstein scandal. Craig Spence, the blackmail artist, he received a tremendous amount of press um, as a blackmail artist. And he was tied to the CIA. And with Spence, a blackmailer cannot afford, especially someone that's that dirty, can, cannot afford publicity. And with Epstein, we saw publicity too. Those, most of the people in the media uh, have just published uh, salacious dirt about Epstein. They don't really seem to care about the destruction of children. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Epstein, those uh, perversion of justice, that Miami Herald series, really put a spotlight on Epstein. And I think Epstein might have had dirt on some people in the Trump administration. And he, knowing Epstein, he, he was a sociopath and, uh, and a megalomaniac. He could have thought that he was above reproach. And I think that uh, that's the reason why he he was taken down is uh, A, the publicity and B, his uh, sociopathic arrogance. Well, you do sort of in the Trump administration, you have some uh, continuity between the George H.W. Bush administration, which you mentioned earlier, the Franklin scandal um, appeared to have ties to. And of course, Attorney General under Trump, who allegedly visited the prison uh, before Epstein's death and all of that stuff was Bill Barr, right, who was intimately involved in uh, a series of cover ups himself uh, during the the Bush senior administration that are, you know, tangentially related to a lot of the stuff like Iran-Contra, the Promise software scandal, um, among other things. So, um, you know, maybe that does have something to do with it. Well, um, what do you anticipate then about the outcome of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial? Well, that uh, trial's been really fishy. Odd, right? I know. <laughs> it took them months and months, the feds, it took them months and months to indict Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, she, should, she should have been indicted with Epstein. Whatever Epstein was into, she was into. So she should have been indicted right along with Jeffrey Epstein, on multiple counts of child trafficking. And in the article that I wrote, I talk about how the Department of Justice, under William Barr, there's a succession of uh, 
statements saying that, yes, we're finding out who was involved with Jeffrey Epstein and they get, they're not going to be able to rest. And, and actually, the New, uh, the New York Times did an article on six of the procurers, including Maxwell. And the, the names of those procurers have come up in the investigations and also by the witnesses or the victims. So that's what's kind of mind-boggling about it. The FBI and Department of Justice had a number of perps just dumped into their lap that, that they could have picked up. And a number of the perps, uh, a number of the victims have named the perps. Mm -hmm. And the FBI had all these leads just dumped into their lap and they dawdled and dawdled and dawdled. And finally, Glenn Maxwell was arrested, but she wasn't arrested on child trafficking. She was arrested on much lesser counts. And then finally, one count of child trafficking. Uh, she was indicted on one count of child trafficking, which carries a 15-year-to-life sentence. So what if, if the De Department of Justice was really seeking justice in the Epstein case, they would have indicted all the procurers. And they would have indicted the procurers on multiple counts of child trafficking because all those procurers were guilty of multiple accounts of child trafficking. Mm -hmm. So they would be looking at 500, 600, 700, 800, however many uh, indictments you wanted to indict them with. And then how it's been done in the past with RICO and the mafia is these procurers to get time off their sentences would roll over on the big fish on uh, the power broker perps. But we're not seeing that justice at all. In the Epstein case, Ghislaine Maxwell has been indicted. And at this point, the federal government knows who a number of the perpetrators are. And actually, when the federal government was initially worked out a really horrific uh, miscarriage of justice, uh, Epstein's sentence, the Palm Beach Police Department had found five victims, and they knew of 17 additional victims. So when they went after these victims, or when they, when they found these victims, I mean, the victims told them who uh, was actually participated in, in the, the abuse with Epstein, and they wanted to indict a couple of those uh, procurers. But then there was a, a grand jury, that horrific grand jury, that didn't indict Epstein on a single count of child trafficking. And I don't know if your audience is familiar with how grand juries work, but grand juries, um, grand jurors are just simply people that have shown up for jury duty that have been funneled to a grand jury. And a special prosecutor is appointed to oversee the grand jury. So only, um, and it's non-adversarial, so only evidence and witnesses that the special prosecutor deems worthy is, are shown to the, uh, are shown to the grand jurors. And uh, special, special prosecutors have so much power over grand jurors that a New York judge, a New York appellate judge, said grand, a, grand, a special prosecutor could get a grand, grand jurors to indict a ham sandwich. So with the Franklin scandal, you had three of those grand juries that were cooked. With the Epstein scandal, you just had one. 
And Barry Krishna was the special prosecutor of that grand jury, and he only called one of the victims. And that is it just shows tremendous malfeasance because the Palm Beach Police Department had statements from five, five victims, but they knew of 17 additional victims. And the feds would acquire a list of 32 victims. So there were many, many victims, but yet Barry Kirshner, that special prosecutor in Palm Beach, decided to only call one witness. And witnesses, these, these victims have been skewered. I mean, they've been molested at a young age. And, and then some of these pedophiles are extremely sadistic and um, were, were, were not at all uh, nice to these girls. So if you're only going to call one victim, it's very obvious that that grand jury was uh, was cooked and it didn't indict uh, Jeffrey Epstein on a single count of child trafficking. Right. I, I tend to agree with your assessment. One thing that really stands out to me about the Ghislaine Maxwell indictment is that uh, I've, I've said this on interviews before. Um, they mentioned her being accessory or directly involved in sexual assaults on minors, but chose not to charge her for that. I just find that really telling that they would like basically say we we this took place, but, you know, we're not going to pursue it, even though it's just obviously like. The, the worst out of all the other things they list in that indictment, just really uh, <laughs> mind mind boggling to me. Um, but anyway, uh, going back to the Franklin scandal. So we, we touched a little bit on um, the Franklin scandal's ties to Washington, D.C. Uh, through Craig Spence. Um, but there's obviously a lot more left to say about that. So um, what do we know uh, about the Franklin Network's ties to the nation's capital and elite players, both in the state of Nebraska and at the national level? In the state of Nebraska, the victims identified the publisher of the Omaha World Herald, a, uh, a millionaire, possibly. A, yeah, he was worth millions. He, he was a department store magnate. Um, they also identified people in law enforcement and other leaders of the society, pillars of the community. Um, and it's very obvious that if you look at the kids' testimony, the victim's testimony, that the, they're being pandered to the, uh, to the upper crust of Omaha. And also, when they're flown to Washington, D.C., they're being pandered to the upper crust of, in our national politics. So it was, as I said earlier, it was something that had to be exposed at all, at all costs. With the blackmail, Craig Spence, he had, his parties were a big affair in Washington, D.C. A number of legislators came to, federal Legislators came to his apartments. People in um, in intelligence, uh, like William Casey, who was running the CIA, um, came to his parties, and a number of people, big heavy hitters in the media, came to his parties. And if anybody indulged themselves, they would be compromised. And and how that worked was, um, Spence would have a party and. After people had been plied with alcohol, something 
would happen. Like there would there could be something sexually inappropriate, or someone might break out a line of coke, or someone might uh, fire up a joint. And 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 they've been plied with alcohol, and so people that stuck around for that, um, they would they would be compromised. And then once someone is compromised, it's uh, uh, Rusty Nelson, the blackmail photographer, explained it like this to me. Um, once you're compromised, you're on a yacht. You're on a, a big, beautiful yacht, and it's a and it's a beautiful sunny day. And on this yacht, you can have anything you want. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drown. So that's basically what happened with Craig Spence and, and, and that blackmail setup is no one is going to get off the yacht because getting off the yacht would ultimately lead to the decimation of one's political career, the decimation of one's family, um, and just reduce their lives to uh, really Reduce, reduce their lives to essentially nothingness. And no one is going to get off that yacht once they're on that yacht. Now, there is an individual named Denny Hastert. He was the Speaker of the House for seven years. Mm-hmm. And he was, a, <clears throat> he was a pederast going back 30 years. And Sibel Edmonds, who was an FBI whistleblower, talked about Dennis Hastert going to a house of ill repute in Chicago. So with Dennis Haster, we have an individual that was at the apex of power. He was the Speaker of the House, and, and, he, and he was a strong-armed specialist. I mean, he, he strong-armed a lot of egregious bills through um, the House of Representatives. And then some years later, he's taken down for being a pederast when it's been known that he's been a pederast. So I never really understood why Dennis Haster was taken down. I, he apparently tried to get off the yacht. Um, I don't know. I think it might have had something to do with greed. Um, he was making tons of money as a lobbyist, and maybe he didn't cut someone in. I'm not sure. But Dennis Haster is a very interesting case of someone that was at the apex of power and obviously uh, engaging in prurient interests while they were at the apex of power. And he finally got busted. But it's amazing. There was a um, <clears throat> there was a congressman named Larry Craig who he was uh, a, a representative from Idaho and then he became a senator from Idaho. And he was a very conservative individual. He had I believe the worst record of voting against gay rights. I wrote a book called Confessions of a DC Madam. And Craig was getting uh, male prostitutes from uh, Henry Vincent, who I wrote the book about. And Craig was getting male prostitutes from another source. And then he ultimately got picked up in a bathroom at an airport in Minneapolis um, for attempting to solicit sex from someone in a, a, the, the stall next to him. I mean, it's, 
it's kind of mind-boggling. This guy's mm-hmm. a U.S. senator, and he's trying to solicit sex from someone that's in the stall next to him. Now, here's a guy that was at in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, and he was a hardcore right-winger, family values guy. How and, and he's picking, trying to pick people up in a bathroom. He's getting um, prostitute, gay prostitutes from more than one source. So how hard would it be to compromise Larry Craig? I mean, that's really a salient example. A, a kid, you know, trying to get extra credit in high school with a smartphone could have compromised. So. These and and these are our politicians. They are highly sexed uh, alpha males, and they will take unbelievable risks to to satiate their lust. Unbelievable risks. And I think, as you know, many of our politicians are compromised. And it's and and that's one thing that Americans really don't understand about their political system. They think that it's special interest money that corrupts the political system, which uh, special interest money does definitely corrupt the political system. But I don't think it corrupts the political system as much as blackmail. And blackmail is a time-honored tradition in the United States of America. I'll give you an example. Um, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had a lot of antipathy toward each other. And there was a muckraking journalist that outed Hamilton for having an affair with a married 23-year-old. And, and Hamilton had been blackmailed by her husband. So uh, when, and then ultimately that really, really tarred Hamilton. And then Jefferson became president and this muckraker went to Jefferson and, and he felt like Jefferson owed him an appointment in his administration because he'd taken care of his um, antagonist. Uh, And what happened there was Jefferson refused to give him an appointment. And that muckraker ultimately outed Jefferson of sleeping with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. So from from the inception of the American Republic, there has been political blackmail. And our countrymen are and women are just completely naive to that fact. Yeah, I definitely would say that there is a lot of naivety there. Um, one thing uh, that I'd like to discuss briefly is um, how the White House itself sort of got um, involved in a sense uh, with what was going on with Craig Spence and Larry King, uh, which has led some people to call Craig Spence uh, his activities uh, sort of like the White House callboy ring. Uh, related to the Washington Times coverage of that. Uh, could you discuss those uh, White House tours uh, um, a little bit? Yes. Uh, Craig Spence, one of the two major pimps in the Franklin scandal, he always had a phalanx of Secret Service. They they protected him. Um, he was, Craig Spence was, uh, like Epstein, he was a very malignant character. And he was blackmailing a lot of people. And I think that he was blackmailing people for the intelligence entity that he was with. But he was also blackmailing people for his own benefit. So he was always protected by Secret Service. It's hard to believe 
that our Secret Service would protect someone like Craig Spence, but he was protected. And he had the juice to take people on midnight tours of the White House, including uh, underage prostitutes. That's the kind of juice that Craig Spence had. And I should add that uh, Craig Spence, like Jeffrey Epstein, uh, apparently killed himself. Um, I do believe that Craig Spence did kill himself. It was a very strange way um, that he killed himself. He was in a full tuxedo in the, at the Boston Ritz-Carlton, and he overdosed on an, uh, an antidepressant called uh, nortriptyline. But he left a bunch of cues, like in a suicide note, that um, or he had an article that was talking about how um, it wasn't right that CIA agents should be uh, subpoenaed to grand juries. And actually, uh, Spence was subpoenaed to that grand jury that covered up the Franklin Network in Washington, D.C. But anyway, he ultimately killed himself. I do believe that Craig Spence killed himself. He was reduced. The, the network that was supporting him obviously pulled the plug because he was reduced to uh, total poverty. And I, I believe that Craig Spence was told and, and then he was getting a lot of publicity. So I believe that Craig, and he also had AIDS. So I believe Craig Spence was told, um, you're gonna have to do this to yourself or we're going to do it. Um, so Craig Spence is another death in the Franklin scandal. However, I do believe that he did kill himself. I do not believe that he was suicided. Yeah, Larry King, in contrast, uh, gets essentially hidden away uh, while all the investigations are going on um, at a psychiatric facility, and really not much happens to him at all. Can you go over that briefly? Yes. Um, so King, he was busted embezzling $40 million from the Franklin Credit Union. And when his friend, George Herbert Walker Bush, was in town, for a fundraiser, King was going to go to that, but he was picked up by federal marshals and driven to Springfield. There's a, a federal psychiatric hospital prison in Springfield, Missouri. And he was um, diagnosed delusional, uh, grandiose delusional. And he was at Springfield throughout the grand juries. And then when the grand juries were over, he magically was restored to mental health and he got sentenced. He, he stood before a judge and he was sentenced. He ultimately did 10 years in federal prison, but he was in a very cushy prison. It, it, the Rochester, Minnesota prison is, uh, is considered the club fed in the uh, national penal system. And then King got out of prison and he essentially had a no-show job. And he lives in the suburbs of uh, Virginia. And I tried to talk to King. I found his direct dial number, but he said that he wasn't him and then hung up. So that was about as close as I've, I came to talking to Lawrence C. King. Well, uh, even hearing his voice after doing the kind of research you did into him would <laughs> would freak me out, I think. Um, wow. So um, one thing that um, you, you quote, um, I think, one or two uh, Republican power players in the beginning of your book talking about essentially as the sort of the as the credit union collapse and all of this started to unravel, um, 
there were people that essentially said something to the effect of everyone knew what King was up to, essentially. And I think that's another interesting uh, parallel uh, with Epstein, where you have uh, John McCain's wife, Cindy McCain, uh, uh, saying, I think it was last year, maybe at the end of 2019, not exactly sure on the date, but she says uh, essentially the same thing. Everyone knew what Epstein was up to, which is quite astounding. The the wife of a former Republican presidential candidate saying everyone knew um, that Epstein was pandering children uh, to powerful people. And then you have these sort of, um, you know, it, admissions going back. So what does that say to you about, um, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but what does that say to you about how these uh, networks tend to operate essentially hidden in plain sight? Well, if you're protected by the federal government, you can do whatever you want, essentially. I mean, if the FBI is not going to investigate you for illicit activities, and the Department of Justice is not going to indict you for illicit activities, then you can, you, I mean, and Epstein flaunted it, that especially in New Mexico, he, according to uh, Virginia Gufree, she was pandered to Bill Richardson, a former governor of New Mexico, and Bruce King, also a former governor of New Mexico. And that's where Epstein had his big, a big compound in New Mexico. So these were, uh, according to Virginia, these two ex-governors uh, knew very much what Epstein was up to because he, he pandered children to them. And that's what is mind-boggling for a lot of people because in the Franklin scandal, social services knew that Larry King was pandering children. I mean, they had accounts of it. And the federal and state law enforcement wouldn't even come near King, didn't interact with King at all. And there had actually been a, um, uh, an investigation into King um, and child pornography by the Omaha Police Department, but then that investigation got quashed. So if you can commit crimes with, with impunity, not having to worry about getting busted, it just frees someone up to do whatever they want. And both Epstein and, and King flaunted the fact that they were trafficking children. So, um, you know, as Larry King started to have his downfall, essentially, uh, everyone starts to jump ship, you know, right? The, the high-powered people that had been associating with him, particularly in the Republican Party. Um, but I, I learned this from your book, um, something I didn't know, um, is that uh, Clarence Thomas, the current Supreme Court justice, is one of the few people who did not uh, try and jump ship, essentially. Um, and I found that very interesting in light of all the uh, Anita Hill allegations, um, because some people may remember that um, those events when uh, Biden, who was overseeing, um, overseeing that, uh, was running for president. Um, so could you elaborate um, a little bit um, on how Thomas was one of the few prominent Republicans who declined to distance himself from King? Uh, Clarence Thomas is a very dirty guy, uh, a pervert. He actually was in Omaha uh, for a while, and he became uh, the head of the Equal Opportunity Commission. And there was a book written by Jane Mayer called Strange Justice. And 
we know that Thomas it was a he said, she said uh, at, at the Thomas hearings that were overseen by, you're right, our president, our, our current president, uh, Joseph Biden. But Jane Mayer re- retract uh, or went and really dug into uh, Thomas, and she found a number of women that had been uh, basically verbally assaulted by, by Thomas. A number of women, and then there was a pornography, uh, a, a video. I think this was in the yeah, this was in the days of VCR. There was a VCR rental that wasn't very far from uh, Clarence Thomas's apartment in Washington D.C., and he was also a porn junkie. So, our one of our Supreme Court justices is he's a pervert and he's a liar, um, and. This is where Biden really, really shows his colors is there was another woman there to testify and and corroborate Anita Hill. Her name was Angela Wright, and she had also been hassled by uh, by Thomas in the same way that Anita Hill had been hassled. And she was in Washington, D.C. to testify. But Biden lifted her subpoena. And instead of it uh, two against one, it became a he said, she said. And if Biden hadn't lifted her subpoena, then Thomas wouldn't have, I mean, he wouldn't be a Supreme Court justice. And one would think because, and this is kind of interesting, um, one would think that the Democrats wouldn't elect Joe Biden to be the be a dog catcher because he allowed someone on the Supreme Court whose political views are antithetical to the views of most Democrats. But nonetheless, Joseph Biden is our president. And but that's really telling about our political system, the the Clarence Thomas interlude. Well, I also think it's, you know, not that uh, I think. um shortly thereafter, maybe before, but around the same period, you also have, um, you know, Tara Reid, who's accused um, Biden of sexually assaulting her uh, when she worked in his office. You know, this sort of occurred in the same uh, period as the as the Clarence Thomas he- uh, confirmation hearings. Um, so, you know, it, it, it appears that, and there's corroborating evidence, of course, for her story. So it seems very, um, you know, uh, that may be one of the motives, if it wasn't political, was that they both sort of in, engaged in uh, similar types of behavior. And uh, of course, there's plenty of uh, videos and pictures of uh, Joe Biden acting inappropriately around women and girls. Um, I, I think most people are probably aware of that by now. Um, the left, uh, um, at least the left that supports Biden, tends to sort of dismiss it by calling it creepy Uncle Joe, um, whereas the right sort of, um, you know, take it much farther. There's people on the right that accuse Joe Biden of being a pedophile. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, we know about the uh, the sexual harassment um, of adults with, uh, with Biden, but I haven't found solid corroboration of him having sex with underage girls. I, I've looked for it. I just haven't found it. I knew that there was something up with Biden um, because he lifted Angela Wright's subpoena. Um, there, was, there was obviously some kind of backroom deal that was, was negotiated to get Thomas on the Supreme Court. Right. But 
I haven't, I, I just haven't come across evidence of, uh, of Biden, uh, having sex with underage girls. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen that either, but people tend, tend to refer to like some of these, uh, videos where he's around senators, children, and, and he definitely acts very oddly. It, it is enough to make you wonder, but of course not enough to really make any sub, uh, you know, uh, substantiated claims, I guess you could say, but it does seem, um, you know, like even the highest levels of our political system with someone like Biden being president, especially in the Me Too era um, of, all, of all times, you know, that that this is really just something very ingrained in uh, D.C. political culture, which is really unfortunate. Um, so well, thing, uh, oh, go ahead. I want to say that uh, he was running against Donald Trump, who uh, the Democrats just completely loathed. And he would have been treated as a conquering hero. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. And in, in that case, Donald Trump. I mean, and, and that's where our politics have descended is Donald Trump running against Joe Biden. That's the, the state of our politics and our leaders are going to take us off a cliff. Um, it's truly unfortunate, but the the men that that govern us um, are many of them are are really uh, they're they're really they're they're perverts and um, and they have a tremendous amount of power. Well, it's not just that you know there, there's the pervert aspect, as you mentioned earlier. You people with those types of inclinations are much more easy to compromise, right? Um, into blackmail for whatever for whatever purpose, which is ultimately what um, you know becomes really problematic. There, it's not just a facet of their private life; it's uh, something that could uh, directly impact their policy making. Um, so, uh, moving on, uh, since we're uh, coming up to um, you know an hour here, um, <clears throat> one thing that I thought was really important that you note in your book is the way that. Uh, uh, these children in the Franklin scandal uh, were treated and abused more often than not. They, they became uh, drug addicts, petty criminals and or prostitutes later in life. And this essentially worked to protect these pedophile networks because their victims uh, status uh, later on as, as addicts and criminals and so on uh, rendered their accounts uh, of their abuse untrustworthy in the eyes of the public. And it seems like this was essentially done, uh, you know, by design or it looks that way. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, here's the thing with that. You have lower socioeconomic children from dysfunctional households. Um, and then they meet up with a guy like Larry King and he turns them on to drugs. And, and that was one of the carrots for these kids. If, if they get molested, then they get drugs and, and some money too. And what happens is when these victims reach a certain age and they're expunged by the network, you're essentially left with a very, very, very damaged human being. Um, someone from a dysfunctional background, someone who's been uh, molested repeatedly, and often a drug addict. So they will go on to commit crimes and end up in prison because three, four, Four of the victims that I talked to um, ended up in prison. Actually, five of the victims I talked to ended up in prison. So they thereby compromised themselves. 
And the same thing with um, Epstein. It wasn't as overt and blatant with Epstein, but when Epstein was initially indicted, Alan Dershowitz was the quarterback, and he had his uh, minions look at the backgrounds of these girls and their face, Facebook pages, and and he was firebombing their credibility. And and these girls, like the victims in the Franklin scan, a lot of these girls had come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and they had been repeatedly molested. So their development is not going to be the development of uh, an average person. And Alan Dershowitz was big on firebombing their credibility just by gleaning stuff off their Facebook pages. Right. So that's one of the problems with these types of cases is that a lot of the kids go on to compromise their own uh, credibility. It's, it's really interesting, though. There, there was a... Uh, article in the New York Times and uh, a federal judge, Patrick Schills, was uh, interviewed and he had represented the Catholic Church um, in 500 abuse cases. And he felt, he was asked how many of the, the abuse cases uh, he felt were fabricated. And he said uh, 2%. So victims, when they come forward, they're usually telling the truth. They're going to, when, when victims come forward, they're going to have to go through hell. And it's very, very seldom that a victim comes forward that wasn't abused. Right. Well, I can definitely speak from experience about the Alan Dershowitz thing, uh, because he took an interview I did with Maria Farmer in uh, totally just took out clips that she later, ex uh, uh, sentences that she explained subsequently, uh, after as like her initial perception and she later evolved and doesn't hold that view anymore. Uh, and he tried to paint her as anti-Semitic, um, in just a very, um, uh, unethical way. Um, and it's a uh, very unfortunate to me that, you know, a lot of the same outlets and even the same individuals that acted at least publicly uh, aghast about the uh, Epstein scandal and all of that um, are still willing to platform uh, Alan Dershowitz, have uh, debate him uh, on pay-per-view and, uh, you know, promote uh, promote him or have him on to talk about uh, things like COVID-19 vaccine mandates, among other things, uh, just uh, uh, wild times uh, we live in. So um, uh, as we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to say on um, on uh, blackmail in general or the Franklin case? Well, I just want to uh, riff a little bit on what you said about uh, Alan Dershowitz. So there are three women um, that say Jeffrey, well, there's two women that say that Jeffrey Epstein directed them to have sex with Alan Dershowitz. Um, one of them was a minor and one was uh, older than 18, uh, Virginia Gufri and then uh, Sarah Ransom. And speaking of Maria Farmer, she said that Alan Dershowitz, when he came to Epstein's mansion, would go upstairs where she thought that the the uh, underage girls were. And Alan Dershowitz also wrote a um, op-ed for the Los Angeles Times saying that the age of consent should be 15 years old. 
And well, that would be regarded. Wasn't it even lower, though, in that article? He said, essentially, when a, a girl gets her period, she should be able to consent. And these days, because of, you know, additives and, and, and hormones and food and, and different things, you know, there's girls that hit it by 10, sometimes younger. Um, well, he wrote that 15-year-old should be the age of consent. And he has just been really nasty uh, firebombing the credibility of these girls. So Alan Dershowitz is one of two things. Um, he's a good man trying to uh, make sure his reputation isn't tainted, or else he's a very malignant, vile human being. And I'll let your audience decide. On <laughs> well, I'll add a little more information to that. I definitely think it's in the latter category. Uh, he went and hired Louis Free, uh, the former FBI director who went around intimidating victims uh, of Epstein, a former FBI director going around. You know, we just uh, earlier you talked about how the FBI made uh, very extreme threats to people in the Franklin scandal. So you hired the former head of the FBI to go around and intimidate victims. That's quite, um, quite problematic. Um, and of course, uh, Alan Dershowitz was also a character witness for Roy Cohn, uh, Donald Trump's mentor, who was also very involved with uh, sexual blackmail. He was actually close friends with Craig Spence, who at his, I guess, um, audiovisual blackmail ready home hosted a birthday party um, for Roy Cohn, I believe. Um, yes. yes. And, yes. Um, you know, Alan Dershowitz is one of his character witnesses. Louis Free um, gets uh, his big career before becoming uh, FBI director. Right before that, he was a, a big time judge. He obtains that judgeship from Roy Cohn's um, law partner, Tom Ballon, who was also on Robert Maxwell's yacht. Um among other things, a Knights of Malta guy uh, tied up with a lot of these same networks. Um, so I don't really <laughs> um, view Alan Dershowitz as exactly someone who's just trying to defend his name. He's definitely very um, enmeshed with this network. And then you have his um, him being introduced by Epstein uh, to Epstein by his own uh, account uh, by Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, who has a lot of um, very shady ties going quite far back. Um, including uh, in, in connecting Epstein directly with Bill Clinton while Bill Clinton was uh, the president of the United States, among other things. So I think there's definitely a lot more there. Um, and that his behavior um, is just him attempting to uh, protect his, his credibility in a sense, because, you know, um, what's interesting, um, about blackmail, right, is that you, you could essentially view it as, um, a threat to kill the public persona that one has built up about around themselves. And with, with the Epstein scandal, um, exploding, you essentially have a, a level of that happening, even though the, tapes or images or whatever haven't been released, there is sort of uh, threats or, or um, damage done to the public persona of these people that were uh, being blackmailed or associated with the network. Um, so I guess they feel, um, you know, like they have to try and defend that, uh, their public credibility and their public persona. And I think that's what we see in the case of Alan Dershowitz. Well, Alan Dershowitz told that when in 2015, when I published the uh, the Black Book and also the Passenger Manifest, Dershowitz was on those Passenger Manifests, and he told American Lawyer that he only flew with his wife, and his wife is nowhere to be seen. But there are girls named uh, Tatiana, and and when in the article when he's questioned about all these girls, he starts to make a joke of of it. 
and finally uh, he thinks Tatiana, I don't know who she is. It could be my mother. So ultimately he's going for, he's going on the offensive, but when he gets nailed, he'll just, he just makes light of it. And he also, during this period, uh, Brad Edwards and Paul Cassell, who were uh, attorneys for Virginia Gufree, they had Virginia uh, swear an, an affidavit where she said that she was molested by Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz, and Jean-Luc Brunel. And Dershowitz was on television calling them frauds and charlatans and then he sued the, then they so they sued him for defamation defamation and Dershowitz launched a countersuit and ultimately Dershowitz uh, nothing really happened there although Dershowitz said he was these guys are never going to practice law I'm going to get their law I'm going to get their law licenses revoked um, ultimately what happened there was Dershowitz and Cassell and Edwards settled. Uh, basically, it was a stalemate. He never got their uh, licenses. So what's interesting is that the media doesn't report that. The media reports that Alan Dershowitz is going to get the, the license of uh, Brad Edwards and Paul Cassell, but the media doesn't report that that case ultimately ends up in a stalemate and, and Cassell and Edwards have their license to practice law. There's so much stuff about Alan Dershowitz, so much information. It's, and, and it's really unfortunate that the mainstream media hasn't taken the task because I do believe that a lot of people, maybe even the majority of the country, think that he's lying. And I think so, too. <laughs> and Virginia Gouffrey is locked in a defamation case with him right now, and he's being really nasty. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that defamation suit comes out. Um, I want to touch really quick on what you just said about uh, the role the media, uh, what you just touched on um, about the role the media is playing in that particular case. But I do want to point out that um, in the case of people like Roy Cohn, in the case of people um, like Craig Spence and Larry King, and also, um, you know, with Epstein, you tend to have uh, journalist figures or even publishers um, sort of uh, in, in these networks to a degree, uh, like you mentioned earlier, in the Franklin case, uh, you had um, the publisher of the Omaha World Herald uh, being part of the network, but also, I believe, uh, one of their main journalists uh, was busted. Um, yeah, Peter Sidron. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, uh, <laughs> the outlet he worked for was actually very sympathetic uh, to him, despite the fact that he'd been busted for molesting, uh, I believe, two children. Yes. Uh, Sidron uh, was, but what really took Sidron down was, um, he, the uh, Omaha Police Department, I think it might have been that there might have been some feds too, ultimately executed a search warrant on Peter Citron's house and they came across unbelievable amounts of child pornography. Oh, uh, okay. Unbelievable amounts. And to the point where he should have been given a life sentence, given all the child pornography. If, if the government had wanted to uh, have one count or indict him for one count of each 
piece of child pornography that he had, they could have put him away for the rest of his life, which would have been good because he was an unabashed child molester. But I think he ended up doing three or four years. That was that was the extent of his punishment for um, having an unbelievable amount of child pornography. Well, I think um, <clears throat> I guess what I was alluding to there is is that you know it it, ten- it seems like these networks cultivate assets or uh, cultivate people to compromise or elevate people they've already compromised uh, within journalism to a considerable degree. It seems to be something that comes up um, in these networks time and again. You know, since my book um, that I'm writing. Uh, right now uh, is going over sort of an overview of several of these cases, um, but even before Epstein and how, um, you know, the, the, the points where they interlock and all of that, there definitely does seem, it does seem to be a recurring theme. And I think it's, uh, it just shows how important the media is ultimately to facilitating the cover-ups. Um, you know, if you look at the, the Franklin scandal, for example, uh, you know, there were a lot of people in Nebraska specifically um, that were compromised both in law enforcement and in the main uh, media outlets or that had power over those media outlets. And really, you know, if you can control um, the law enforcement response and the media response at the same time, um, it's very hard to um, <laughs> really get anywhere. Well, I can. Here's the thing with that. Um the uh, federal and state judiciary said that not one child had been abused throughout the Franklin scale, not one. And the media was more than happy to trumpet that. It was trumpeted in the Omaha World Herald. It was trumpeted in the New York Times. Um, when Alicia was indicted by the uh, federal grand jury, the Washington Post even got involved. And we're seeing the sanitization of Jeffrey Epstein's network. What I find mind-boggling is the media has settled on 14-year-olds that Epstein didn't molest girls over 14 years old when there's a number of accounts. Of much younger girls, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that show that Epstein was, we know of at least molesting girls that were uh, 11 years old. So that's been sanitized by the media. And of all the ink that's been spilt on Jeffrey Epstein's um, illicit activities, I believe that the article that I wrote is the only article that calls for justice by indicting the perpetrators. The, the mainstream media has been very assiduous about digging up salacious dirt. Yeah. But that no one in the mainstream media has called for justice. No one. I'm as it's very frustrating. Yeah. Well, you read my Jeffrey Epstein article. I mean, look at all the articles that I cite in that one article and not one of those articles is calling for justice. I find that mind boggling. There's Um, not even a call to investigate Wexner properly. (laughs) You know, um, it's astounding. He's been given a complete pass. Um, amazing about Wexner is, okay, Vanity Fair had an article that said the reason how Jeffrey, the reason why Jeffrey Epstein got in the orbit of Les Wexner's is because Wexner was lonely. And Wexner is made out to be this, uh, this poor individual who was preyed upon by, by Jeffrey Epstein and he doesn't, didn't know about Jeffrey Epstein and that he's his background is pristine. And Les Wexner, as you know, 
was uh, an attorney that worked for his uh, Al Brands, was shot in the back of the head execution style, and there was a homicide report on it, and it listed Wexner as one of the principal uh, suspects yeah. in that assassination. And then he's hooked up with Frank Walsh, um, who is an appendage of the Gambino family, giving like 90, at one point, Walsh was trekking like 90% of the, the merchandise. Right. By so Wexner, and, and this is what people miss about the blackmail, is Craig Spence, Larry King, or Jeffrey Epstein could not blackmail the most powerful men in the world by themselves. Jeffrey Epstein was a college dropout from essentially a blue collar background in Coney Island. There's no way that he could by himself blackmail some of the most powerful men in the world. I mean, Wexner has connections to the mafia. So mm -hmm. all one of these people would have to do with these powerful men is they would say this guy named Jeffrey Epstein, he's bothering me. Let's, we need to get rid of him. Um, but that didn't happen. Um, and the reason why it didn't happen is Jeffrey Epstein had an organization behind him that would seek that would seek retribution. And that's what people don't get. There's no way that Jeffrey Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell by themselves could have blackmailed some of the most powerful men in the world. It's, and it's the mainstream media has completely missed this. Well, the mainstream media doesn't really want to talk about the blackmail operation, but but other people have completely missed this fact too, that there's no way Jeffrey Epstein could have blackmailed the most powerful people in the world without knowing without those people knowing that if something happened to Jeffrey Epstein, there would be retribution. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to come out about Wexner. Uh, I recently, I don't know if you've seen it, um, published an excerpt from my forthcoming book about the Arthur Shapiro murder, that particular lawyer that worked for L Brands. And there were actually a series of connected murders uh, before Shapiro's. And they were uh, looking to investigate uh, those murders, specifically the murder of a, Frankie, a guy named Frankie Yazanoff and his fiancee, um, Ella Rich. Um, because it was so obviously connected to them anyway, um, to the Arthur Shapiro murder. And when Shapiro is killed in broad daylight and shot, uh, you know, in the head, essentially <clears throat> execution style, um, as you said, they go to look for the case file on the Yazanoff Rich murders and it's, it's been destroyed. It's not there. <laughs> uh, who had that kind of pull, uh, to do that? You know, it, it's sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, similar to, to Franklin in the sense of, you know, the, the, po the police chief was obviously compromised in moving to protect, uh, people. And, and that, uh, appears to be the, the case in the Arthur Shapiro thing. Um, but I recently stumbled across the most bizarre mainstream media <laughs> article on Leslie Wexner. I don't want to talk about it too much. Um, but his personality, the way he uh, promoted himself um, in the mid and late 1980s is just so far removed from how it is today. Um, he essentially bragged um, about uh, having uh, a split personality. He described it as a demon possession uh, when he was a child and that it, it re-entered him when he turned 40 and was worth half a billion dollars, uh, which I guess for him would have been 1977. Um, and all of this stuff, which sort of goes back with his um, 
his his linking up with some of these um rather shady uh, billionaire figures who later became part of the mega group or had organized crime ties um and all of that i mean it's just a very um you know bizarre network there um to say the very least but you know i mean that stuff i can find without the kind of resources as like new york times and washington post journalists um and they totally give him a pass and um have created this narrative as they have for a lot of other powerful people in the epstein case um that it was just Epstein's charisma uh, and manipulations that led to all of their entanglements with him and nothing uh, else is to be seen. And they were all uh, taken advantage of by Epstein, which, of course, obviously shows they have no willingness uh, to actually investigate what happened there. With Wexner, he said that uh, Jeffrey Epstein had embezzled, quote unquote, vast sums of money. From yeah, that's him. a lie. <laughs> so here's the thing with that. OK, Vanity Fair said that. Wexner hooked up with Jeffrey Epstein because he was lonely. And con man, sociopath, Jeffrey Epstein augured into his life. Now, if that that is the cover story on the relationship between Les Wexner and Jeffrey Epstein. So if that was, in fact, the cover story and that was, in fact, what happened, then what what I find amazing is why didn't Les Wexner try to litigate with Jeffrey Epstein about those vast sums or report it to law enforcement? Wouldn't if if I befriended someone because I was lonely and gave them power of attorney over my billions of dollars, which is in itself uh, kind of mind boggling, and they embezzled a bunch of money from me, I would go to the authorities. So that's just another problem. Well, it's because he has no reason to, because a separate foundation that his wife uh, was uh, the president of, forget the exact name, um, he, Epstein donated the same amount of money that Wexner claimed he embezzled, I think it was like $46 million, uh, to the this Abigail Wexner-headed foundation. <laughs> um, you know, like a couple of months after Wexner claimed he discovered the embezzlement. Um, so obviously, it, you know, they'd have to explain that $46 million payment to the Wexners um, <laughs> for the same amount of money that was allegedly embezzled. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it just shows it, it's it's an egregious um, malpractice of journalism for all the outlets that reported on the embezzlement claim or even reported that Epstein had given that money back essentially to Wexner shortly thereafter, back in like, I think, 2008 or so. What I find amazing is that publications like the van the vanity fair article there it's either a seismic uh, stupidity or seismic disingenuousness that they would even float the idea that the only reason why epstein was in les wexner's life is because wexner was lonely i mean that is so <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very silly. Um, but people buy it. Um, people should remember, I believe Vanity Fair is still owned by the Conde, Conde Nast Empire, um, who uh, was I, I, I don't um, know who heads it now, but it was it's run by the Newhouse family or was for a long time. And uh, yes. Cy Newhouse Jr., who ran that for years, was like Roy Cohn's best friend <laughs> from childhood on, um, along with uh 
the the guy that ran the National Enquirer, uh, the the Pope family, and all of that. Um, you know, these guys have a lot of ties to media, and they have a lot of pull in media. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, I think it's a, a you know they they either cultivate people that run these outlets, um, or they acquired them themselves. Like you had Robert Maxwell. Uh, precede his entry, uh, and, and Ghislaine Maxwell's entry into uh, New York public life with a purchase of the New York Daily News. Uh, he dies and it goes to Mort Zuckerman, who is also very much enmeshed in the Epstein network. Um, you know, these people, uh, <laughs> know how important, uh, media outlets are to controlling public perception, um, and into influencing politicians. Um, so, you know, you have the influence afforded to them through blackmail and then influence through, uh, their, um, not necessarily complete control over the media, but because of how consolidated media has become now and essentially six companies control all of it. You know, it's not that hard to have, uh, people, uh, in, in sort of, you know, the, the American oligarch class that have a vested interest in protecting the power structure, which includes that stuff, you know, mobilizing, uh, to protect, uh, one of their own, even if they're not directly part of the network, uh, themselves. Um, with that being said, we've, we've been going for a while. So, um, I have to wrap up here if that's okay. Um, uh, could you let, uh, my listeners know where they can purchase, um, your books, what you're working on now and how they can support your work? I am, uh, you, you can, Purchase the Franklin Scandal or Confessions of a DC Madam from Amazon. And I'm working on a book now. This is my third book on political blackmail. And I'm not quite ready to, uh, <laughs> to unveil it, but uh, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm, well, say no more my, then. <laughs> this, this will be my third book on uh, intelligence blackmail of politicians. So I think after this book, I'm going to probably start writing about picnics and fishing and stuff yeah like something nicer i was about to say <laughs> i i sort of feel that way too after the epstein book i might revisit the anthrax attacks or something that isn't necessarily nicer but you know a different type of um conspiracy i guess you could say um yes. because it's it's hard to um operate in in this world um where where these dark things happen and bringing this stuff to light but it's really important work so i want to thank you for all that you have done and that you continue to do in this in this field and i want to thank you whitney for all the work you've done oh well thank you <laughs> Uh, well, with that, um, I'll just wrap it up here. So thanks, everyone, uh, for listening to this episode. Um, as always, Unlimited Hangout Podcast is premium uh, for the first uh, few days on rockfin.com. Um, and also uh, for Unlimited Hangout subscribers. After that, it's publicly available um, on SoundCloud, Rockfin, and um, all other podcasting apps. So um, if you support the show, thanks a lot. And uh, thanks, to everyone, for listening uh, to this episode of Unlimited Hangout. And we'll catch you next time. 